Welcome to Facing the Blank Canvas, the new Center for the Arts Evergreen podcast, which offers you a monthly glimpse into the mind of our artists. The podcast will focus on working artists and art collectors and how they found their path to a creative life. We hope to offer you the stories behind the exhibitions that make Center for the Arts come alive. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the peek into the mind of the artist facing the blank canvas. Hi, my name is Lisa Nirenberg. I'm the executive director for Center of the Arts Evergreen, and you are here today to listen to Facing the Blank Canvas. I am here with my co-pilot and senior director of exhibits, Sarah Miller. Hello, everybody. How are you? And we're so excited. We are here today with um, two artists that we are featuring in our next exhibit. On February 25th, it opens, and we are here with Helen Rudy, who has beautiful fused glass. Um, just absolutely beautiful. I'm so excited to see this piece, see these pieces. And we have Danny Williams, who is a beautiful oil abstract, monochromatic, very saturated, beautiful artist. And we have paired them together. And Sarah, we've came upon both of them by happenstance. We did. So Lisa and I were in Denver one day, um, first visited Walker Fine Art Gallery down in Denver, downtown, and we walked into a back room. They were between exhibitions, and they have a hallway that is in their elevator back entrance area, and we saw a blue painting that stopped both of us in our tracks. And Lisa grabbed me by the arm, and she said, we have to know who this artist is. And it was Danny's painting, one of his is amazing, as Lisa described them, monochromatic. Um, Danny's really a master of mark making, I would say, when it comes to his style and the way he executes his paintings. So we called Bobby, asked her about her artist, Danny Williams, that she represents, and she was kind enough to put us in contact with him. And just about that same week, we had been visiting Prism's workspace, where Helen's studio is located, also in Denver. Uh, We've got another artist that we work with at Center for the Arts who has her studio there, and she introduced us to Helen. We had been looking for a glass artist. Uh, We don't have very many artists at Center for the Arts that we work with who work in glass and we were so taken you could peek in Helen's studio she's got a window that you can peek into and seeing her use of color just floored us Um, not only is she working in fused glass but she's just doing it in a way that we had never seen before with some extrusion elements in her work and really a sculptural feel to the way she puts her glass pieces together. And we walked out that day and said, we need those two to have their artwork talk to one another in the same space. And that's how this exhibition, Saturation, was born. And you know, before we got in touch with Bobby, don't you remember we're on the internet? And we're finding Dr. Danny Williams and we there, we could not find uh, Danny Williams, the artist, uh, but we found his office number and tried to reach out to him through the uh, through his uh, office. And so maybe that's a good place to start with Dr. Danny Williams because that is um, really a, a twist in careers or a turn that you went from being a doctor to now a full-time artist you can talk about i know you still do practice some um but how did this all come to be um well that's a complex question the short version is um uh, i've always been able to draw i've always had an interest in art and um, through my years in school, um, you know, I, I didn't really take any formal classes or anything like that, but always had an ability. Uh, and I credit that to my mom uh, because she was always able to draw extremely well. And even my great-grandfather, I have some of his drawing notebooks uh, from the past that he did when he was a, an early teenager. And, and they are classic illustrations that look like uh, he was drawing uh, from Greek statues and things of that, na- things of that nature. Uh, 
so there, there has been art in, in our family in one form or the other. The other thing is, is I was actually born in France. Uh, my father was in the army, the military, and he had an opportunity to serve part of his time in France. And as he did so, he met my mom, who was French. And as a consequence of their getting together, I was born and basically lived in France until I was about four years old. So there's a, there's a cultural influence that I'm grateful for um, that I might not have had otherwise uh, that also impacted my interest in art and, and culture in general. Uh, so my, my interests in as far back as I can go have been in, in things that I like to explore. Uh, and it has been anything from uh, space exploration to anthropology to uh, just a variety of things, and art is one of them as well. And, uh, but when I got into university, I, I focused on um, the biologic sciences, and then from there, I went to graduate school, and I had... Um, uh, exposure to um, cell and molecular biology, which I just thought was incredibly interesting. And um, from that, uh, I went to medical school. And from that, I decided to specialize in rheumatology because at that time, uh, there was not much known about patients that had rheumatic diseases. And I thought it was a, a good venue to enter uh, for that reason alone, because I had interest and I had participated in research in part of my graduate school as well. So I, I come from a very strong scientific medicine background, uh, but I, I don't let that identify me. Uh, I have numerous interests, um, one of them being art. So I do art, I do medicine, I do, I collect things, I, I love to travel. So I, I, there are many facets to what I do. And um, my opportunity for my art career came about uh, while my wife and I were on a sojourn. We took two years off uh, to travel. And uh, basically we had started out to travel one year around the world and we had such a great time that we extended it for another for another year, and um, we had saved our money, paid off our student loans, and did what we did to to generate all of our funds toward going to uh, travel around the world. And we had to make decisions like, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to eat out here in Denver, or do you want to wait and save our money and eat out maybe somewhere in Paris? And then so that was the rationale that we used. So we prioritized our expenses that way. Um, during the trip, um, I got to thinking, because it's amazing, when you don't have any obligations and you don't have any uh, commitments, and uh, we were totally free. We had uh, resigned from our respective positions and had left our home and packed up of all, all the belongings that we wanted to keep, and we kept them uh, at, at my wife's uh, parents' house. And uh, so we had no obligations. And when you have nothing that you're, that you're committed to be thinking about, your mind kind of wanders, wanders, and, and allows you to recollect things that you haven't thought about in a long time. And one of the things I thought was, since um, I had this opportunity, was well, maybe I should try to start painting. And that's where the melding of having a medicine career and going into art uh, was born. So, and I did that. And when we got back from our trip, my wife resumed her previous occupation and I was able to explore uh, my interest in art. And when I first started painting, I started making uh, landscapes. Uh, pretty much photorealist landscapes. And uh, I was down in Santa Fe and I was looking at um, basket weavings. And those basket weavings kind of made an impression on me uh, in terms of the patterns that were involved 
and the, the orientation of the weave. And uh, so I came home and I, instead of doing landscapes, I decided to try to replicate the, the weave and the patterns and the flow. And as a, in doing so, I developed a technique that went beyond what looks like basket weaving uh, because that was only my um, introduction to it. So I developed techniques uh, over a period of time that allowed me to, to uh, generate patterns, wave-like forms with a dimensionality that is just more than a two-dimensional image. Um, so that's where uh, I, I started actually creating something which I think is pretty unique uh, in terms of the art world. And uh, it gives me great pleasure to do this. It, lays, it allows me to be 100% creative and it produces unique effects. And uh, I entered in 2009 the Colorado Art Open that was at the Foothills Art Center and I was fortunately picked to have representation there uh, with one of my pieces. And uh, it's important to me because Michael Chavez, who was a curator, was uh, picked my work, but also Christoph Heinrich, who is the director of the Denver Art Museum, was there as well. And he also uh, picked my work from the entries that were available. So, and, uh, and I had really good feedback about uh, my artwork with regard to their opinions. And uh, subsequent to that, I, I became represented by Bobby Walker at Walker Fine Art, which you mentioned is in Denver, and the Golden Triangle, and just a few blocks from the Denver Art Museum. So that's where I am. And yes, I still do medicine. I kind of do it intermittently as well as uh, my painting. So I'll try to meld the two together. Wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I think what we were so struck by as well is the multidimensionality of both of you. Seeing your work, we knew nothing about either of you personally. And then when we met, it felt so serendipitous that both of you have this extensive background in travel. You were both born overseas and you both came to art as a second career or an alternate career in addition. So Helen, could you talk a little bit about some of those aspects of your life and work that I just mentioned. Yeah, throughout listening to Danny just there, there there's an awful lot of similarities from in our backgrounds. Um, I'm British. I was born in Liberia, moved back to the UK when I was eight. Um, during my time in England, I actually have an urban land economics degree, a Bachelor of Science in Urban Land Economics. Um, and I used to work for a, a major pub company, traveling my way around the country by way of pubs. Then I moved, I actually met my husband while I was cycling across Africa, doing a, a trip across Africa, and my husband was doing the same thing. So um, he wasn't obviously my husband back then, so we figured if we can put up with each other for several weeks at a time, filthy and dirty, then you know it's probably not a bad way to go. <laughs> so we did the cross the pond thing for a couple of years, and then back in 2000, I moved over here. Um, my husband at the time was living up in Vale, so I moved to Vale. You know, I used to live in the Lake District where it rained 300 days a year, and he moved to Vale, and it's sunny 300 days a year, and it's like, well, where are we going to live? I said, Vale will do just nice, thank okay. you very much. I can do that. So back in the day when I moved over, I actually started working for Vale Resorts in construction management and property management for them. But I struggled an awful lot in the winter time, in the evenings, mainly because they, there really isn't a whole lot to do unless you go out and eat. There was the cinemas, of course, but certainly, you know, it gets dark at five o'clock, four o'clock, and it's freezing, so you don't do an awful lot, and I don't sit down very well. Um, I never like to sit down and do nothing. I don't watch much telly or anything like that. I read. So a friend of mine who was and is a glass artist, but she did stained glass, had a little studio at her house, so she invited me over to go to her studio and start pottering around and seeing if I wanted to do something like that. So she had a kiln. So I started dabbling with her kiln um, in making kiln-fused glass, very simple projects. Um, but what happened was it became a habit, a very intoxicating habit that I couldn't leave alone. 
So I started making more and more pieces, but glass is a very expensive medium in terms of the, the product itself, the, the, you know, the sheets of glass, the powdered glass, what you need to do to, to make the glass. So I started out purely making functional work while I was still working. And then I got picked up by Pismo Gallery up in Beaver Creek. Um, while it was functional, um, you know, a lot of the work they found that, you know, people would, you know, there was price points, 50 to two, three hundred dollars. So a lot of the Beaver Creekites up there would, you know, pick them up as, you know, change, pocket change items, and they'd be great hostess gifts. So that's where I sort of first got my starting glass. And it helped feed my habit and pay for my habit of buying more and more glass. So um, during that time, I was still working at Vail Resorts. And then back in 07, my husband and I, we moved down here to Denver. Just as the real estate market was collapsing. So I couldn't find a job in construction management and real estate. During that in time, my work was, I was in more and more galleries, in all the Pismo galleries. I was in several others around the country. So it's like, oh, well. You know, maybe it's someone's telling me it gives me the opportunity, a bit like Danny, when you don't have the pressure and there isn't the job there to just see where it's going to take me. So that's when I started going full time into into making my glasswork, doing shows, Loveland Sculpture Show, um, things like that. During that time, I also had my I had two kilns, which were one was a really large one and it was in the garage or garage, as you say over here. Mm -hmm. It was in the garage. Um, I had a spare room downstairs, which was my shipping room. I had another room, which was my cold working room. So during that interim, I then moved into prison workspaces where you saw me. So I've sort of metamorphosed into that space, and that's allowed me um, the ability to get bigger and bolder, um, to experiment an awful lot more, and to sort of create the art that I do. Um, I'm particularly fascinated, and you call this exhibition saturation, and particularly with the glass, it allows the colors to be very saturated. Um, and I also like to play an awful lot on um, taking the polish and the shine off the glass because it, it intensifies the colors even more and it makes the glass glow. So um, that is one aspect I like to do. Um, pretty much... I would say right now, it, I'm back in that experimental mode after having a couple of busy years and sort of pushing the envelope on a couple of pieces that we'll be bringing to the show for you guys in terms of size and volume of glass and how it's made. So pretty excited about it all. Absolutely. And Helen, I think it's so fascinating that you're completely self-taught, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's... I, I think perhaps coming from my, I suppose, the other side of my brain... Um, glass is very technical. So it's a, making confused glass is a little different to blown glass. I, you need the, the dexterity with blown glass, and I suppose I'm lucky I'm an artist, that um, I can use my one side of my brain and still have the artistic element because when you're making the glass in a kiln, you always start off cold, and then you take it up to its processing temperature where it's liquid. And then depending on the thickness of the glass that you've got, um, you have to bring it down slowly and anneal it. So that element of the glass I find very fascinating, which is bizarre because if you ask me to turn the remote control and change the television channel in the house, it's like, well, what button's that? And yet I can compute, I use a computer con to control my kiln. So it's, you know, it's clearly things that interest you, you can get to grips with. So, um, so yeah, with glass, it is, it's very scientific. Um, and I think because it's trial and error, a lot of it is, it's complete experimentation because you have an idea of what you want to do, but you sort of, you start out small and then you start supersizing the pieces to see how far you can get those pieces in terms of thickness and processing to enable you to develop it. So I think as long as you've got a grounding in the basics, you then, are, your head will allow you to take it further. 
Talk a little bit, Danny. Helen mentioned left brain, right brain, and we've had this similar conversation with you in so many ways. The fact she's talking about sort of experimenting into her process, and you did the same. I know that originally starting in very realistic landscapes and then finding your style. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know that some of you mentioned wave patterns and some of the different patterning techniques within your work. Where does that come from within you as far as that left brain, right brain split? Um, well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> And, and I, I don't know that there is a right brain, left brain split. I know it's talked about a lot. I think, you know, people with certain aptitudes are, are thought to have one side of their brain functioning more than the other, the art side versus the, the technical side. And, but, the, you know, the, the brain is joined by a bridge, the corpus callosum. So it's it, clearly it, tap into both sides. Though. Yeah, well, yeah. Maybe not everyone can exactly. or has the ability. Well, I, I don't know that. It, you know. Maybe they haven't tried. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. And uh, but I, I've never made a, a distinction about what I was doing. And I, I think with my my uh, transitioning from from doing realist art to to abstract art was basically uh, more of a matter of creativity. Uh, because when I when I discovered the techniques with my current paintings, what I was doing was actually developing something that uh, I found that I could manipulate and get certain images. Again, the the three dimensional nature of, of my paintings, um, and also I found out just from the way people responded to my newer paintings, as opposed to the realist paintings that I did before, it was that. The, the, they seem to engage people um, in, in a much more strong fashion than, than just what a person would do with a realistic painting, which is just basically an observational process. Uh, they, they're just maybe looking at how well it's made. Uh, but but what, what I've noticed is I like to sit back in the back of the gallery and watch people look at my painting and try to figure out what's going on and what it is. And, and it's interesting to hear their, their conclusions and how the paintings make them feel. And what I especially like is I've noticed children, they, they actually interact with the paintings even more. Uh, I've had several parents take their children away because they wanted to actually grab into the painting and see if they could you know, touch, at least in a tactile way, the, the, the sculptural type of elements. So I, I find that fascinating that, you know, it, it, my paintings are, uh, give a venue to where a, an observer can, can interact with what it is that I'm making. And if it's, you know, and, and that just brings a lot of um, satisfaction to me because it, it's more than you're just looking at a painting and going, well, that's nice. Uh, it, it's you're actually engaging in your thought process. You're engaging in your feeling. You're engaging in, in, in trying to, to comprehend what it is. And I don't know that a lot of abstract art, especially to, to the average person on the street, um, has that capability. I think a lot of people uh, shy away from abstract art because they, they say they don't understand it or whatever. And uh, I think my, my art, even though it is abstract, it, it has a sense of familiarity because of the patterns, because of the waveforms, because of the way the, the painting flows. Uh, it's like they recognize something in it uh, that they can relate to, but again, they're not really sure what it is, but it, it, it kind of engages them in a, in a way that I never had people look at my other artwork and have the same kind of response. So, Danny, what's interesting about that is I was one of those people that wanted to touch your artwork. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you do, you want to, and, and I know better, but, um, but it is, it's very, you describe it as kind of some basket weaving. It's very, it looks like ribbons to me, and it's, it's so beautiful. Um, talk to us about your use of color and, the, you know, to use the word that um, Sarah has so brilliantly called this exhibit saturation, that describes your artwork. I mean, it's the, I love the deep blues that you use and the silvers. And so talk to me about how you choose those colors. Um, initially, when I started this technique, um, I, I was working with black. 
paint. And it actually gave some pretty dramatic results. Um, and I had not yet figured out, and it was a process of learning and experimentation to, to actually achieve the same results that I could with black paint than I could with color. And I found out that there was a, a range of colors uh, that I could use that would replicate the same kind of uh, result that I was getting from uh, the black paint. And basically, it's, it's, that kind of led me to the colors that I use. And then I was even to expand upon that and actually be able to use all colors. So there's no limitation now to, to what color I choose. And, and I do like colors, and my paintings are monochromatic, which means basically they're one U, but because of the techniques and the way I employ the brush stroke and the way the brush stroke reflects light, it, it gives the, the impression that there's depth, that there is shadow, that there is highlights, even though the paintings themselves are all uh, basically one U. There's no variations. And I have had some experimentation with, with changing a little bit of the color, but most of my paintings are one color. But when you look at them, they don't look like they're one color, and that's because of the way the light affects them. And, it, and the nice thing about my paintings is that the light, the, the light actually creates the image. Um, instead of my painting highlights or dark tones, to create the same kind of image. So that's what gives the, the dimensionality of, of my paintings. It's actually, I'm, I'm painting with light, essentially, because it's how the light interacts with the brush stroke and the direction of the brush stroke that I have. So whatever is going on that you see, that you register through your eyes into your brain, is a function of how the light is actually hitting my painting. And that's kind of neat because the painting changes throughout the day. The painting changes because of the light quality, because of the color of the light. It changes due to the, the way you're positioned to the painting. You can have a different look from, you know, walking across a painting from one side to the other than you do straight on. So, so they're, they're uh, dynamic, uh, which I don't know how much art there is without incorporating some kind of movement uh, that, that, that could claim the, the same... Uh, uh, property and uh, so that's that's what I like about it and I think it's the dynamic quality of my paintings uh, that that really is what engages people uh, I've had people I can't tell you how many times that they will go up to the side to the edge of the painting to see if it's actually a flat surface and it basically is a flat surface even though when you step back away from it and look at it from a distance in the proper light it looks like it's three-dimensional and uh, I think that's kind of a fun thing that I, that has resulted from my painting technique as well. We are so excited for everyone to see it. Oh, and thanks. the way Danny talks about his paintings being of one hue, Helen, your work is the antithesis of that. And that was so, what we were so drawn to with your work was your use of color and light. Why do you love color? Where did that come from in your work? And then talk a little bit about, you mentioned, you touched on it briefly in the beginning, but your use of light and the reflective surfaces. Yeah, I mean, just listening to Danny, there is so much synergy there in terms of what he creates with his palette and what I create with glass. It's just taking the glass through a slightly different process. So in terms of um, when Danny was saying that if you stand from one angle to another, you get a different view or a different vision of the glass. Well, with my work, the same thing happens. It's just down to the layering of the glass um, in terms of how much volume you have or what temperature I process it at. So um, a number of pieces will have the texture on it, and that texture is created by not taking the glass up as high in the kiln so that each piece will be um, almost like a bar relief so that then when you look at it, you'll get a different vision or a different viewpoint from a side angle. So it's all about then is how you process the glass in terms of um, different temperatures to get a different angle and a different um, texture going on. But also a number of the pieces that we'll have here will have elements of glass where it has vaporized metals on the surface. 
So the result is with those metals, you will go from a Zion color to a copper. And it all depends on where you're standing or where the light is reflecting off it as to what color dominates that particular piece of glass. So again, it, it's sort of taking that element um, and how the light plays with it. But also um, when working with the glass, it's, um, I often, like I said before, I like to start small because then as I replicate it and get bigger and bigger, sometimes you lose the saturation because it becomes too dominated by a particular color. So then it, over, it sort of overtakes the piece and we really don't want that. But ultimately, um, what's sort of driven me in some of my shapes is again from my, say, my trip to, trips to Africa, where I have pieces called a mzungu. Um, and these are sort of almost replicate the headrests that the Maasai used for sleeping on. Um, and again, my color range there is very sort of um, prairie-like, blacks, whites, um, replications of that trip taking that form, which um, is, is it's a very uh, caressing form in a lot of respects, the way it cradles the neck as they sleep. So it all depends on um, the time I can have to experiment and what captures my uh, imagination and then allows me to create the pieces around that. So my series of Umzunga, which weirdly enough is when I was uh, guiding trips in Africa Umzungu means crazy white person. It's a slightly slang for us. Um, and the guides in Africa used to call me Princess Umzungu. So I'm the crazy white princess. So it's all a sort of a play on that time when I used to do an awful lot in Africa. Um, but I also think that the saturation, it's, it's weird because uh, we all like, a, people tend to like glass to see it glossy. And there's a, you know, there's an aspect to that which is great, but it's amazing just by taking the glossy aspect off the glass, it does intensify the colors. And you take, by sandblasting is the process to take off that sort of that upper crust of shininess. It allows those colors to really come through even more. And um, we call it suede. You, you have suede over here, don't we? You know, the suede fabric. Mm -hmm. So by taking that crust off, the glass, the outer layer of shine, it gives the glass this very tactile suede-like feel to it. So again, you do, you, you sort of, you do want to touch it, but it also, you know, by sealing it, it, it allows that glass to sort of just glow. It, the, the light comes through it in a very different way that it glows on its own without sort of needing so much of the backlight or the front light that we often get on glass. So it's fun to sort of try and experiment with those pieces and taking the crust off it to um, to take it back to that layer. But also then it, it usually allows the texture to come through. Quite often you can then see the ind individual strand of glass that goes into each piece by doing that, just by that reductive process. Oh, go ahead. I was well, just going to say, I liken it to when you talk about that internal glow. It's like when, it, when a sculptor's using a piece of alabaster and people will say mm. that it glows from within. Yeah. It's that same thing. Some of my favorite pieces of yours are those that don't have that shiny gloss yeah. on them. Yeah, it's amazing that the, that aspect of just taking the shine off, just somehow it, it does, it, it sort of intensifies, saturates even more the color that we've got going on. But also it, it's about what colors, and now Danny's monochromatic, but it doesn't look monochromatic. Me, I am about color. But again, it, it's, I like to put certain colors together because they bounce, they almost contradict one another. And with glass, we have different properties. Some have um, sulfur, copper, what colors that go into making that color, um, elements that go into making that color. But what happens is that if I layer um, for example, a green on a blue, it's the um, copper and the sodium react. And then you'll usually get a little ring around the, one of the colors as they touch each other. So some of the pieces you will see, it almost looks like a third or a fourth layer of glass has gone in because of that chemical reaction that's gone on. And um, in the atoll pieces that I will have, one of them that's coming to the show, it has a complete play on the, the white, the vanilla, the um, turquoise blues and the blues because we get that chemical reaction going on between the colors. So it looks almost like an oyster gray forming 
on the pieces. So that to me is a, a real fun aspect because you, people can't understand how we can get this third, fourth dimension coming in. It's just purely that chemical reaction. So you know what I'm thinking. You know, art is such a part of growing and being able to really go to the side of the brain that often school is sometimes so English and math. When I hear you speaking, I think, wow, if I could bring a class, a chemistry class to your studio and say, this is why chemistry is important because you can apply chemistry to your art. Uh, and, and that's what's fascinating because these kids who are in chemistry class, they, they say, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't need to learn this. And, but there's, there's so many multifaceted parts that can be connected through art that I love. And I think that sometimes um, people don't see the importance of art in our curriculum. And when you connect the dots, it's like, wow, it's so important to have these kids understand how art can be such a part of our lives and, and a passion and a... Um, we talked about this. We talked about a new program that we're starting. So you, you want to go to art school and really talk about how making a career out of being an artist is so important and, and all the different facets that you need to know to become the, the artist like you have become because that chemistry piece is so important. And I'm jumping for one minute because one of the other things I was thinking about was your travel that you love, and I'm thinking you're inspired by your trips to Africa. I know you're going soon to Mount Everest to lead a group of women, is that it? Um, so when you're there and you're inspired, do you keep a sketchbook with you to kind of? Well, what I usually have with me on my trips now, because we, you know, it's back in the day would be a sketchbook and you know, we'd have cameras. And, and most of my travels are all on slide film. Well, you know, who does slide film anymore? Um, so I usually have my iPad because it's amazing. You can go into the Kumbu region now of the Everest region of Nepal and all the tea houses have power. So, you know, the iPad can be charged up. So that tends to be my little sketch pad. But again, phones this day and age, you can take your phone. It's so much easier. So pretty much for me, it's, it's snapping photos of things that, you know, as I'm going along the route. Um, but particularly when I used to guide treks and bicycle trips in Bhutan. If you've ever traveled to Bhutan or even Nepal, um, they highly decorate their doorways, particularly in Bhutan. And you have a lot of phallic symbols, but ultimately their doorways are um, obviously very uh, rectangular and everything replicates out from that rectangle. So the rectangle gets bigger and bigger and then they've got all the decoration in, which is when you look at my work, it's very constructed. And I think that comes back to my real estate background and economics. But ultimately, um, a lot of my work has been the layering of the colors, but very um, symmetrical. And that was taken from, a lot of it was from the colors and the symmetry from the trips in Bhutan in particular because you look at those doorways and they're absolutely amazing and they'll have the red, the yellows, the blues, and again, all the, a lot of the colors will bounce off each other. So it's all about sort of just, it's, it's not being very conscious in the moment of what I'm snapping and taking photographs of, but you know, you just take lots and lots and then something at some stage will take root in your mind and it'll just sort of ruminate there for a while until I think, oh, you know what, I was thinking of such and such and then I look back at it and then it usually will spark an element or a degree of um, change in my work in terms of colors or constructive nature that I work on. And yeah. Danny, I know you've taken a lot of inspiration from your travel as well. Are you still, when you're traveling now, and I know things have changed with COVID, but what's your go-to? Do you have a sketchbook with you? Is it all in your mind? How are you capturing that inspiration? <laughs> that, that would be a lot to hold in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, I take sketchbooks. Uh, I always sketch. Uh, again, it's usually a realistic kind of uh, uh, drawing that I do. Uh, but I, I do um, gather ideas from what my observations are on, on my travels, uh, particularly in nature. Uh, I mean, I look at cloud patterns. I look at 
uh, patterns of waves. I look at patterns of, of how the wind uh, interacts with the surface of water. And uh, a school of fish, I don't know, kind of like the big flocks of birds that make patterns in the skies. And the school of fish, when they're evading a predator, they ball up. And, and I, I look at all those kind of elements and I, I try to see if I can replicate that in some of my paintings. Uh, so it's not so much basket weavings anymore. It's, it's what I'm trying to do to, to uh, explore the, the generation of, of propagating forms, uh, waveforms, and, and the flow of things. And, and, and it, as a consequence, it, and again with my brush technique, it gives my, my paintings a sculptural feel. Um, and uh, one could say that I actually am sculpturing with paint the way the, the light interacts with it. Uh, and uh, but it, it also has a strong organic feel, and I think that comes from my 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 observations uh, among my travels. The other thing that was really nice about my travels is I got to visit probably the best museums in the world, and I got to see, despite whatever country I was in, their best art on the world in the world or or in that country. So it was very educational in that aspect, uh, and it doesn't matter if it was indigenous people's art or you know art of the masters. Uh, it was just a, a real uh, opportunity, and I'm very appreciative of having that uh, experience. Uh, so that that kind of flavors things as well, because you start to develop an eye as to what uh, what what uh, th there's a common thread despite whatever kind of art there is of what people are trying to do. And that's what I kind of try to aspire to as well. The other thing I will say that uh, you're, Lisa, you're absolutely right about art. And it, it actually is more enveloping than I think people give credit for. Because usually when people think of art, they just limit it to, well, there's a painting. But there are so many examples of art. I mean, I'm not 100% sure about this, but the one thing that separates us as a species from everything else is that we make art. And I don't know, I mean, there are animals that make tools, so that used to be the go-by for, for differentiating human species uh, from others. And, uh, but uh, the, I don't know of any other conscious animal that makes art other than us. And we've been doing it a long time. As long as there was a, some degree of leisure time, uh, it, and it goes back for you know hundreds of thousands of years. And uh, so the art has enveloped our society, our culture, our, our experience for long periods of time. And it takes many forms. Art can be, you know, if you look at a Ferrari, if you look at a building, if you look at the way nature has you know panoramic vistas. It's it's all not that we create them, but that you know it's it's all around us. It's in it's in the silverware that you choose, and and uh, you know and there's always a lot of of controversy about well I have antiques in my home I can't put in an abstract painting and I and my response to that is you know if you love something you're generally going to put it together with other things that you love. And in that sense, it will fit. It'll fit. And if it if it only pleases you, that's okay too. You know, there there's no set rules. I think. And uh, if there are, they're they're all artificial anyway. They're just artificial constructs. And uh, I just think people are engaged in art more than they think so. If you look at a well-designed commercial or something like that, it's it's all it's all out there. The clothes you wear, you know, the way you cook a meal is can be very artistic. Uh, and then I think the, the important thing is to have that as part of your life. And I, I consider that in everything that I do, I, I, I'm an artist. Um, so I'm, it's not just limited to making paintings, it's to, it's to whatever I, I engage myself into. And I try to approach everything with the same technical ability and expertise in whatever the task is, as, as I do with my paintings and stuff. So why well, you know, you two are so fascinating. I want to encourage everyone to come and actually see this exhibit in person because online does not do your work justice. It is absolutely beautiful. And we had another exhibit 
um, last spring, and Sarah did this amazing job of taking each individual piece of art and making one piece of art by combining the art pieces. And I look so forward to seeing what this exhibit looks like um, when it comes to life because I just, your monochromatic, saturated, awesome colors combined with your fused glass, it's just, it's going to be a beautiful exhibit. And I am so excited. Um, so thank you guys so much for giving us your time today. Uh, if you are interested in coming to our exhibit, it opens on February 25th from 4 to 7. And we will have a Q&A with Helen and Danny from 6 to 7, and you can learn more. And they will be here, and you can ask them questions, which will be really, we're excited to, to hear the answers to things that we haven't thought of yet. No. So we're super excited. And I also want to say thank you to our sponsors because we could not do these exhibits without our sponsors of Mountain Home and Alexa Interiors and Karen Weiner from Caldwell Bankers. So thank you to all of our supporters. And Sarah, is, did I leave anything out? No, I think the only thing is if you can't get to Evergreen, make it a point to come to Evergreen to see this in person. But if you can't, we will have the Q&A online on Zoom, which you'll find the link on our website. We'll also link to both Danny and Helen's websites and their galleries at which they are represented. So there are lots of opportunities to see their work, but this is the only opportunity to see their work together. And I think that's what makes this so special. Be sure to come up. February 25th through March 26th. So thank you guys. Thank you both. And thank you for listening to Facing the Blank Canvas by the Center for the Arts Evergreen.
Thank you all for the opportunity.